I've been finding myself to get more easily grossed out recently. I don't know what it is. I hope this doesn't develop any further. I don't know. It's because you're becoming more conservative. Because I, It's not even sexual stuff. It's like odors and manners and table manners and stuff like that. I've been getting a little more sensitive to it. I just hope I'm not. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it's such an ask to be like a guy who's really on it with things like that. I should just chill the fuck out. That's usually I think the answer to what I should do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember watching the movie inside out and thinking about how one of the motions in the movie is discussed. And I did some reflection and realized I never really feel it like really? ever. No. Discussed. I always, <laughs> when it comes to specific, uh, specific emotions, I always say that I've, is embarrassment one of the emotions? Not, in, I don't think that's out. one of the five in Inside Out. No. But they're going to do it Inside yeah, Out yeah. too. <laughs> and new ones like anxiety and all that. I wonder um, how many there will be. They're like, they're teasing it. You yeah, know, we don't yeah. really know. I'm sure there'll be, yeah, like five teasers leading up to it. I bet there's going to be like a hot one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's going to be like a puberty, like, you know, um, horniness goblin. Or <laughs> horniness emotion thing. I don't know why I call them goblins. Everything's a goblin. Um but no, I've never felt as angry as I felt embarrassed. I've always, <laughs> always thought that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't have like that wide of an emotional <laughs> I should have a wider one. That's such a funny thing to say about yourself. But hey, if you know yourself. Then, yeah. No, that's actually one of my like most masked traits is that <laughs> uh, I never really my cry or anything. emotional ability. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. really good. Um, yeah. But yeah, do you want to introduce yeah. this week's topic? Mm-hmm. Welcome to Silent Generation. I'm Joseph. I'm Nathan. And for this week, our topic is department stores. It's kind of the rise and fall of department stores, just because they are they are falling pretty bad right now. But we're both really interested in them. Uh, they're a fun intersection of like the built environment because they're physical buildings, but they're also like they say a lot about how people shop. And um, really intersects with fashion as well, too. Yeah. I like them because I'm into basically all legacy urbanist features of a city. You know, train lines, walkable neighborhoods, department stores. I think they're part of that canon. And mm-hmm. we're lucky to still have them because they are in many ways sort of like the ultimate third place. Like if you composite a lot of third places together, you're going to find all of them in a department store. And in some ways, they've sort of slipped up and they need to reevaluate how they can meet, yeah. uh, how they can be those third places for people again. But they're pretty cool. Yeah. But we can probably start out with a little bit of history and then get into modern conceptions of department stores. Mm-hmm. Department stores sort of independently popped up in London, New York, and Paris. And it is coincidental, but I think that they popped up independently in part just because like we intrinsically like had this idea of like the ultimate shopping experience in our mind. Mm. And then all of these different people in these three different cultures started envisioning what that would look like. Yeah. I think it was like cities reached a certain point of density. Um, and also manufacturing reached a certain point as well. I think it was maybe the convergence of those that kind of like made it a feasible and like viable yeah uh, type of commerce option and as we get into like the early days of department stores like the things that define department stores 
just sound so like ubiquitous now that it's weird to think of them as new features. Um, so in the U.S., like department stores kind of grew out of dry goods stores, which I thought was interesting. You associate them with clothes nowadays, but like I guess the first thing was beans. <laughs> Whenever I think of dry goods stores, I just picture like an Old West um, general store, which I mean, I'm sure some of these were like that. Um, but yeah, at these like new department stores, you were able to um, like actually browse the wares and pick stuff out where before everything would have been behind the counter. And so that was like a big step, I think, in trust between like in yeah. the in the social contract that you could trust your average like, you know, customer not to just instantly steal from you. <laughs> yeah. And those stores where everything was behind a counter, you and I, I think we both have like been to sort of kitschy candy stores in mm-hmm. highly like in touristy areas like ghost towns in California <laughs> will have these where where you go into the candy store. And you can't actually hold any of the merchandise unless maybe there's like a central table, but otherwise all of the candy is behind glass and you can look at it, but the workers have to pick it up and package Mm -hmm. it and then sell it to you. So it's impossible to shoplift. And that's how a lot of other stores used to be prior to department stores. Yeah. And the ones that are still like that in the old model, like totally intuitively make sense. It's jewelry stores. Like they just sell very small, expensive things that like are the most likely to be stolen. Yeah. Yeah, they also had fixed prices and price tags, so there was no bartering. And so this is like the beginning of the end of bartering in the West. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I uh, I don't mourn the loss of bartering. I've been in places like Egypt where bartering is still going strong, and it's exhausting. It's like I just don't want every transaction in my life to turn into this like battle of the minds. <laughs> like, just try and like see how you can pull one over on someone. I just think that's not good for the. Uh, the societal contract. <laughs> yeah. I don't want all of the people around me to be scheming and yeah. <laughs> to be trying to get like the upper hand. Actually, my own family, my dad, there's this branch of my family that my dad doesn't trust that much. And he's always like, you got to keep one eye open because he always says that there's like, <laughs> there's always an angle and they always like, it's never going to be a straight path for like how mm. they try to like succeed in life and Anyway, but I, I actually was with one of them in Cancun or was with several of them in Cancun from that branch of the, the family. And I went with one of them to like a, a town outside of the resort and she loved haggling. She was really good at it. <laughs> she did it for like an like hours straight. Like, oh, man. <laughs> it's so funny. You have like these people who are just like built for a different kind of culture. Like her, her haggling ability goes unused in her, you know, like daily life in the U.S. But then you put yeah. her in that element. I think... Honestly, my mom was surprisingly the same way in Egypt. I don't know. I guess she's had all this, like, she's like Irish Catholic, converted Judaism. Like, she's just, she lives a very, like, middle American existence, you know? Um, and she actually yeah. works in retail now. I just think that, like, she had this secret urge the whole time to, like, I bet that doesn't actually cost that much. But then now she's yeah. finally able to do something about it. We were also talking a while back um, about, like, bribes. Uh, one of our friends had tried to bribe a a tow truck basically yeah. and it didn't work out but yeah i <laughs> bribes make me uncomfortable like it's just so it's such a can of worms when you open that up like it it works in that one second but if everyone does it like it just it all comes apart like <laughs> yeah 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 i don't want to live in a kleptocracy and i as like a government employee i have to do like annual ethics trainings on how to not engage in corruption, but also how to not engage in behavior that has the appearance of corruption. Oh. Because as a public servant, like 
even if I and the other person exchanging gifts are not doing it for corrupt purposes, it might look like it to other people. So I'm supposed to follow like pretty stringent rules Mm -hmm. when I um, accept gifts. Yeah. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I'm a librarian. I'm not like, (laughs) it's it's not like I uh, getting treated to these amazing things on like, uh, I don't know. It's not like political horse trading and stuff. No one's taking you out to find dinners to try and extract some kind of political favor. No, people will. I mean, not recently, because but like when I started at the library, people would regularly would try to give me like money and not in like a bribe way. It would be like after I had helped them do something on the computer because people try to tip you. Yeah, they try to tip me for quite a lot. Sometimes like one time someone tried to give me like one hundred fifty dollars because I helped get her a job. And I was like, no. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And um the the only thing they can really give me is like they could give me get baked goods, but if I, mm. if they give it to me, I have to put it in the um, in, in the, the lunchroom, and the, oh, everyone man. has to get a chance <laughs> to eat it too. But yeah, I'm not I'm not dying for cookies or yeah. bribes. But yeah. yeah, so I usually tell them not to give me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, with working in construction, people always, whenever I say anything about inspections, people are like, ah, Chicago city inspectors. I bet you got to bribe them and stuff sometimes. And I'm like, emphatically, no. <laughs> like, yeah. like, no, that is not a thing. Um, there was a really interesting crackdown in the 90s on this where the local NPR station bought a, um, a bar space and renovated it and ha- purposely did some things wrong and then like bribed. Yeah. Um, inspectors and caught them on video. That bar is now called the Brehone Pub, and it's actually a pretty good place in River North. But when they were pretending, when it was a fake bar, the name for it was going to be the Mirage, which I think is really good <laughs> and winky. It's just so like a journalist. Yeah. They must have been having so much fun, like <laughs> yeah. doing that investigation. But yeah, with city inspectors, like there's no chance of bribing them anymore. Um, I think that they just. I think they're paid more nowadays, so they're not like liable to look aside um you can see all their salaries you know just like any like public employee i'm sure yours is on there yeah i mean all uh, i feel like government jobs are now like the the best they've ever been in a way Mm. in part because like we are compensated more fairly but also jobs across all sectors suck now so like a lot of people are underpaid and academia you know for example Mm -hmm. they think they're unique and that they're like (laughs) They're the only ones in a precarious job situation, but like everyone is now. Yeah. Um, although I'm kind of not because I'm in a union. Yeah. But I actually do know someone, or I, I met someone once, where he was an inspector who got caught and then had to go to jail for a while. Whoa. Yeah. So you did find a bad one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when I deal with inspectors, all I have to do that's maybe morally compromising is I uh, force myself to laugh at their jokes when they're really not funny. Um, some of them actually are funny, but I had this one inspector who was like kind of doing a quick five stand up routine with me, um, mostly just about how wives are annoying. So I just had to kind of play into that and everything went fine. Some yeah. of them just really want to reminisce about their days of actually being a trade. Um, framing inspectors are like that sometimes. Um, they just want to like, oh, great job framing on this. I used to do it just like this back in the day. Um, so you have to indulge that a little bit. But that's maybe, you know, emotional bribery. Yeah. And what isn't emotional bribery? <laughs> Yeah. But um, to get back Mm -hmm. to department store history, something you wrote in the docket is about the, or actually I wrote that in the docket. What am I saying? Uh, Is how early department stores were influenced by uh, the great exhibition at the Crystal Palace in London and also a little bit by bazaars. But for those that don't know, the great exhibition was like a precursor to the World's Fair. 
And it happened, you know, at a time when like London was industrializing and there were so many things to show off mm -hmm. as to like the progress in science and the progress in the arts. And they held it in the Crystal Palace, which was this really large building that was just covered in windows. Like I think the whole ceiling was a skylight. And so department stores, early department stores, as you did write this in the docket, <laughs> oftentimes did it have a lot of natural light. Yeah. Yeah. I think something we're going to talk about throughout this is that kind of transition from arcades, which arcades are a legacy urbanist thing where it's an enclosed shopping area. And then arcades became the precursor to malls and the suburban shopping mall, which we are both against. Yeah. <laughs> and then department stores uh, fit in on the arcade side of things where they're located in cities um, and they were, you know, these indoor conditioned shopping spaces. And so to kind of get out ahead of it, like, why are we not hypocrites? Why is it OK to like department stores and arcades, but not malls? And the answer to that is that, like, Arcades and department stores are a part of the urban fabric. They play the game in terms of a city. Like they play into it. They're like, they provide a service for people and they don't demand people drive out to them. In yeah. The suburbs. When department stores were developed, there, there were not parking lots. Like yeah. for example, in Chicago, we have some buildings that are very historic, like the Marshall Fields building and the Carson Peary Scott building, which we'll get to in a little bit. But they're in the center of downtown, in the center of the loop. And they give you an idea of what malls could have been. Because malls as a model, there was a period where like, I actually did kind of find them cool. And mm -hmm. I, I romanticized them. And I was sad that they were dying. Mm -hmm. That was pretty strong towns for me. Yeah. And now, I, I mean, part of me does get excited when I'm in a mall. Like the last time I was in a mall was around my birthday. Because I went, I went to a farm with my family to go pick some produce. Oh. And then afterwards, my siblings wanted to take me to the Rainforest Cafe, the last one in Illinois, which is in a mall uh, somewhere right. in the like Northwest suburbs. And yeah, it's kind of like nice. It's like, it feels like you step into the nineties, especially with the Rainforest mm. Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, I guess we can start off with kind of uh, just department stores in Chicago. Cause it's a pretty good, just like, the story of department stores in Chicago is like pretty emblematic of the rest of the country, I would say. Um, so the big one in Chicago was Marshall Fields. Um, that was the premier department store. They had stuff like bridal registries, and they also had a personal shopper for you who would like reach out and call you if something came into the store they thought you'd like. I don't really know how that worked, like numbers wise. Like how many, how many people would the average personal shopper be assigned to? That sounds like kind of stressful. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a lot to keep in your head. But yeah, so the physical building of Marshall Fields is still there. It was bought by Macy's in 2003? 2005. But yeah, it's known for its like just beautiful interiors, large like Corinthian columns everywhere. Um, and it's a huge atrium. And then at the top of it, they have a uh, glass dome designed by Louis Comfort Tiffany. It's one of the many, like not many, one of the few and beautiful Tiffany domes in Chicago. Um, but yeah, it was like this real palace to like commerce and to, uh, I don't know, capitalism in Chicago. Yeah. It feels especially luxurious too when you compare that to say like a Costco where you're literally shopping in a warehouse. It's not nice. There's yeah. nothing like aestheticized or glamorized. It's not beautiful. But yeah, even though the Macy's that now occupies the Marshall Fields building is like 
kind of run down and mismanaged, it's still nice. It's way nicer than mm-hmm. like getting your clothes from Costco. <laughs> um, yeah, my bit on Costco, I don't know. I'm fascinated by it. I do technically have a membership. It's my ex-girlfriend's, but she hasn't kicked me off of it. So, you know, she's more than welcome to. When it comes to grandeur and the shopping experience, I think we used to have it because it was kind of like a promise to the customer. It was saying that, like, you know, look at how grand this store is. We shall treat you grandly as well. And there's, it's okay to have a skepticism of that, you know, because Costco does kind of run itself on, like, look at how ugly our store is. We save money in that, and then we pass that savings on to you. And I think it really plays into that American thing of, like, I want to be sure I'm getting the best possible deal, especially because there is no bartering or anything. Yeah. We need, like, some other way to secure the fact that we're not getting ripped off. Um, and so they just make the store uglier and uglier, and they put these, like, pallets, these cardboard boxes of socks on a pallet. But to get back to the Marshall Fields building, so the Marshall Fields building, it has a couple of meeting spots that I think we can have like an interesting conversation around the idea of meeting spots. So the the most famous one is meeting underneath a clock, which was like a popular place to meet up in the early 20th century. So at the corner of the building on State Street, they have this like nice clock that I think works really well as a meeting place because it's easy to see from the street because it's above. And then also it's not too large. And I think that's important because I remember when I was like first starting school at the School Air Institute of Chicago and there were people who were going to be coming to Chicago for the first time and they were planning to hang out at places and they would suggest meeting up at places like The Bean, which is not a good place to meet because it's so big and there's so many people there. And also say you're trying to meet underneath The Bean, you're being, your image is being reflected in multiple directions. It's like, it's a disorienting place to try to meet up with people. Another place after I recommended friends did not meet at the bean, (laughs) they suggested going to was Navy pier. (laughs) Just so far away from the entire rest of the city. Like the, the rest of the city is on the other side of a underpass basically from you. If you're at Navy pier. Yeah. They don't even have a trolley to Navy pier anymore. It's not fun to go to that trolley though. is never actually trolley. It was the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I love the Marshall Fields clock. It's just done in this like beautiful bow art style. Um, And it really overhangs by a good distance over. And so, yeah, you can see it from two different angles. And I I love the clock so much. Um, I I found online for way too much money a set of blazer buttons. So these are like brass slash gold. They're made of brass. They look kind of gold buttons for like a navy blazer. And they have the clock on them. And they they still come in the original box. It says Marshall Fields on it, which is cool. I was in the search for like some kind of blazer button that had something Chicago-y on it. Because people make like cufflinks out of old CTA tokens, which I thought was cool. But I don't really wear French cuffs ever. But yeah. So it's a great like Chicago symbol that's not like, I don't know. There's a lot of you Chicago blazer buttons out there, but I didn't go to that school. So I'm not allowed to wear those. I don't even think I would recognize the symbol of the clock on a blazer button if you're wearing it. I mean, I, I walked under that clock many times, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not, not for, like the most recognizable yeah, symbol. It's not for other people. It's for me. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's the that's the you're like a grandma dressing for themselves. Exactly. Literally, my grandma does do that. And she's a big fan of department stores. She will like 
yeah, drive quite a good distance over to New Jersey to go to this like dying mall just to visit their <laughs> their department store and pick out stuff for my grandpa and I. Yeah. So for you, when you're trying to meet up with people downtown, where do you usually recommend as a meeting spot? Hmm. I guess most recently I was meeting up friends, but it was pretty clearly for lunch. So I just gave them the name of the restaurant, but it was, um, I wanted to meet at the Sirius Cafe, uh, which is in the Chicago Board of Trade building because I'd been meaning to see the building and I had a day off for some reason. I'm trying to think what it was. Yeah. Um, and so we, went, we met at the Sirius Cafe, which is known for its generous drink portions or uh, just strength of drinks in general. <laughs> and it's only open during like trading hours, basically. So since I had a Friday off, we all met down yeah. there. But Yeah, that building's very mysterious because it's so big. And when you walk up to it and you can't really see it, because how do you say it? Like with Art Deco buildings, you know how they get smaller as they go setbacks. up. Yeah, the They're setbacks called, yeah. as you, as they go up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because it's it's a very tall building, like you can't really see it from ground level, so it's like kind of confusing. I actually think it's because so the Chicago Board of Trade building is at the um, like an end point of LaSalle Street. I'm pretty sure it picks up on the other side of the building, yeah. but it means that it does have actually like a very good avenue to view it. And as you're like driving down LaSalle, which is a very wide street. You can really just like take in the building as you get close to it. And there's a very uh, pretty statue at the top. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's from the same period. or It's actually from a little bit. It's from later than Marshall Fields. But it does have that grandeur of that early 1900s yeah. architecture. But yeah, where do you use as a uh, meeting location downtown? Well, I used to meet up at the American Apparel in high school. And then that shut down. And then I started to meet up with people at the Urban Outfitters. And then that shut down. And now there's like no clothing places on State Street that I would like to browse before someone uh, meets up with me. So I the Uniqlo that I was at today, the State Street Uniqlo. I could, but I've never done that. So (laughs) it's not a very like, I don't know, it's a little too like cold and harsh and modernist in there. I think it's not very greeting. It's also always confusing when like a retailer has a basement level because yeah, must... it's mostly basement <laughs> down there. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. Fun. I don't know. I always feel like that's hard to meet up with people, but yeah, now I'm more likely to suggest we meet up at like a municipal building, like the Hill Washington library mm-hmm. or the cultural center. Yeah. No, the cultural center is a good pick. Yeah. That's like, I don't know. It's a little, there's like two ends of it. So that could be confusing, but no, you just gotta be a little clear. Yeah. On it. it also is like, it's disorienting if you haven't been in it before, because like, Say you go to the cultural center and you try to view both of the stained glass domes they have because they have two. Yeah. That alone, like people takes it takes a while unless you like <laughs> yeah. know the layout. No, that is true. Actually, yeah, I've run into that. So uh, another department store building in Chicago is the Carson Speary Carson's Peary Scott Co. Building, uh, which was designed by Lewis Sullivan, great Chicago architect, um, and it's now more known as Goth Target. Because it has this beautiful cast iron, uh, like black uh, ornamenture on it. And it also is the home of a Target now, um, which is like a full size Target in the city. You have to give it credit. It actually has come in handy for me a few times. I go there all the time. I mean, that's probably the shop, the Target I've shopped at the most over the years. And for me, Louis Sullivan is like one of my favorite architects. And I'm really glad that we have that one because I feel like. I mean, a lot of Louis Sullivan's work got demolished, and I think that's the best example of his architecture in the city. Although I know you love the Cross Music Store in Ravenswood yeah. as well. Um, I think Louis Sullivan is going to come up a lot on this podcast. I think that's like a natural. I think it really dovetails into the period of Chicago we want to talk about, and he touched so many different types of architecture. 
yeah, I love the Krauss Music Store. It was his last commission. It was actually a commission of a student of his who had like become a moderately successful architect. And then he kind of like, as a charity case, gave the uh, gave the job to his former teacher who had fallen on hard times financially and was also struggling with alcoholism. And then it's a pretty humble building. Uh, it's just two stories tall. It would be a music store on the first floor and then an apartment above. Now it is a like, I think it's an architect or some kind of designer has the space below, but it got restored. And I saw the unit up above for rent uh, a while back. Uh, it pops up on the market every so often. But I was walking uh, in Lincoln Park and I saw a building, um, just like a pasta restaurant called Pasta Palazzo. And I was able to recognize like, wait, that that must be a Lewis Sullivan. He has a very distinctive naturalistic um, ornament style. It turns out it was a very early commission of his. And so his career is kind of bookended by these small one to two story commercial buildings with really like grand entrances. And then, but in the middle of his career, I mean, he was building these gigantic, <laughs> yeah. these truly like monumental places. Um, I think the Carson Peary Scott store has to be his largest work though. Yeah. I mean, I think probably, I mean, it's his largest extant work pro- mm-hmm. probably, but the um, Chicago stock exchange, wait, what was the building that got demolished? Oh yeah. That was the stock exchange. Yeah. Um, I heard the names of them are confusing, but I believe that is the stock exchange. Cause I was talking about the board of trade, which is different, but yeah, the Chicago stock exchange was torn down and certain parts of it were preserved. An archway of it is at the, um, the art Institute of Chicago. And then they've replicated the trading floor there as well. They took all the millwork from that and reinstalled it. Yeah. They've done some like crazy things with that over the years. Mm-hmm. Cause so I, as I mentioned earlier, I went to the school of the art Institute of Chicago. The art Institute of Chicago was built as a research collection for the school. The school came first. It was founded six years earlier. And so they get to use like, the assets of the art Institute, like all the time. And so they've done like crazy performances in that stock exchange room. Like they did this like fluxus piece or this data is piece where they destroyed a piano and that was the whole artwork. Oh. <laughs> it was just people like smashing a piano for like an hour. <laughs> like that. Um, but even the demolished works of Lewis Sullivan, we're lucky to have really, really good photos of them. And a lot of them were taken by Richard Nickel, who was an architecture photographer in the 60s and 70s in Chicago. I feel like you're dressed like him right now. I, I would say I am. <laughs> I, mean, I have like uh, dark, uh, not rimmed glasses on, but darker glasses. I He's one of my all-time heroes, Richard Nickel. He was just like from a Polish family here in Chicago. Um, and he was just obsessed with documenting all the great architecture in Chicago, specifically like at this period during urban renewal where a lot of them were in danger. And he died in such a sad and poetic way, which is that he was digging through the stock exchange to find and save pieces of architecture and something collapsed and killed him there. So he literally like died doing what he loved and was killed by the things that he thought were beautiful. It's like it, it's too written, you know, it's like too uh, poetic. But yeah, I visited his grave in, um, here in Chicago. It's really pretty. Yeah. So the third like famous department store that we should talk about in Chicago isn't as famous for like having a central department store that like was extremely beautiful and luxurious as with the Marshall Fields building and the Carson Peary Scott building. The third one we'll talk about is Sears. So Sears has a connection to Chicago more so in like the manufacturing sense because Sears had their central factory in the North Lawndale community of the city. And it was like huge. And 
when that shut down, North Lawndale became one of the, like the poorest and most poverty stricken neighborhoods in the city. And it still kind of struggles with that um, to this day because the number of manufacturing jobs that left the neighborhood, it could never recover. Yeah, it would take so many small companies to make up that gap in a way that can't really be done. Like there was a density yeah. of jobs there that can't really be replicated. Um, it's so interesting that Chicago has like inside it, like basically company towns. Pullman is the most famous example. Yeah, that of was this. literally a, a company town because <laughs> Pullman is the name of the, the company, which is now the name of the neighborhood. Yeah. But yeah, these like these neighborhoods looked like healthy, fully functioning neighborhoods, but they were just fully focused on one thing. If that one thing left, if the whims of a company or if like an economic downturn happened, then like, you know, the shark would stop swimming and it would die. Yeah. Basically. You know what I just remembered is in this neighborhood, Avondale, there's uh, yes, there's several buildings throughout the neighborhood that are a bit bigger that were used for factory or factories or manufacturing purposes. One of the buildings that we have is the Fields Building, which was mm-hmm. the warehouse for Marshall Fields. Yeah. And it's now been repurposed to be used for cinema. You can use it to like film TV shows and movies. Oh, cool. And they're very big lots because like mm-hmm. the size of like a factory floor, a single mm-hmm. floor in that building, it is huge. Oh, so wow. there's a big neon sign over there that says Fields, which you might see it mm-hmm. and like wonder what it is. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You see those dotted like across Chicago. I mean, if these, uh, if an old warehouse has enough like window space available, then it gets to be luxury apartments. Uh, yeah. If it doesn't, they have to get a little more creative in finding a use for it, or they just turn it into a, a storage unit place, which I always think is kind of a cop out. But those have very good return on investment, so I kind of get why yeah. people do it. But yeah, Sears. Their other impact on the city is Sears Tower, of course, that was built at like right before <laughs> I think things got hard. Yeah. For places. And I mean, it's not the Sears Tower anymore. It got bought out by other companies. Yeah, there's a Sears Tower, which bears Sears namesake. But the, there's one surviving structure from the Sears factory, which is the factory, the tower for the Sears factory. And I've been inside of it actually before. And it has like super high ceilings. And it's you you told me that I think it can be rented out for events for events. Yeah, this is in the just to the listener. This is in the North Lawndale, like former Sears complex over there. It was this very tall tower rising up above all of the um, like lower lying warehouse space and manufacturing space. But yeah, you can like rent it out. I've always been curious about that. But granted, it's still in this neighborhood that is really struggling. So it's yeah. kind of an odd place to host any kind of event like gala or wedding. Not to mention saac like too many times in this episode but they would saac would do like community projects in north lawndale and the classrooms would be inside of that that tower like they would have like one or two i think that they're renting for classes so north lawndale was also like a extremely jewish area like the jewish population in chicago like hopped around kind of from neighborhood to neighborhood as it grew and split and diversified but there was a really big presence in North Lawndale and then everyone just left during white flight, basically. But yeah. there was like a project recently where it was like connecting congregations on the north side of Chicago with North Lawndale churches and to try and like bring people back and they would like visit their old childhood homes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a I don't know, it, it's an easier thing would be to just ignore that kind of period where Jews were like complicit in white flight and all that. But these organizations are trying to open a dialogue and try and like, you know get better things done in North Lawndale. But uh, North Lawndale, in a lot of metrics, like you know, safety and home values and stuff, appears to be really turning a corner. 
Yeah, Lori Lightfoot, she did a bunch of initiatives in North Lawndale that seemed to have worked. Like the uh, number of homicides that occur there have definitely like dipped. But something connecting North Lawndale to the Jewish community is actually, I learned this when I was looking into the library, the Chicago Public Library location that's in North Lawndale, Douglas. The Douglas branch, the first female prime minister of Israel actually worked in it yeah. as like a library worker. Wow. Yeah, Golda Meir has like very, very humble origins. She was like born in Milwaukee or something to like trade unionist type of Jews. And then yeah. she got to be prime minister. It's really wild. Um, we need more of that. Yeah, no. I know we say that, but like. Yeah. Although technically Joe Biden, I guess, was kind of working class. I mean, Scranton, Pennsylvania sounds very humble. Mm-hmm. He's not familiar. He's he been leaves. like yeah. such like a lizard for so long. He can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Um, yeah, so some of the other Sears buildings, like the actual Sears stores, um, uh, there's one of them up in Ravenswood, uh, in Chicago, it's on Lawrence Avenue. Um, it was empty for quite a while. Um, I was doing a project, a construction project further down on Lawrence and this carpenter that we were working with had a contract to, uh, do the renovation for that. And it was a pretty ugly building from the outside. All the windows were bricked up and it was painted like yellowy white kind of buff colored. And so with windows and department stores, it's a weird like evolution. When they first really started going, they were known for their large windows. Like, yes, display windows. They can be credited with that invention as well. But it was also that you wanted like, you know, the shopping experience to be like light and airy. And um, that was just associated with, you know, cleanliness. But then later things really changed tack like post-World War II. And they're like, no, we can more kind of control the consumer experience if we just close up the windows and keep things focused on the products inside. And so the stores kind of shut themselves off from the city in a way. So in the process of this, uh, of renovating the Lawrence Sears in order to turn it into luxury apartments, they debricked all the windows. And what's nice is they had such tall ceiling heights in there that um, each of the units became like a split level mezzanine unit where at the window you'd have like 20 foot ceilings. And then further back in the unit, you'd have 10 foot ceiling, 10 foot ceiling. So you'd have like a living area above your kitchen. I just think those are really cool. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of loft conversions. I kind of have this weird thing about I want to live in a place that was like built to be a house, (laughs) you know, not converted into one. But yeah, it's just a really cool use of an old building. Yeah. So getting outside of Chicago and department stores, as I was researching for this week's episode, I found an interesting link between department stores and the Flaneur. So Flaneur was actually our first episode we did. And um, at the time, I was actually kind of nervous about that episode because we didn't really know what we were doing. And I thought it was kind of cringe, but uh, I think it's aged well and we can address the topic a bit, a little bit. So as yeah, um, to people who didn't listen to the first episode, like Flaneur is just this concept of the um, the active urban explorer and experiencer of someone who like walks through the crowd and experiences the city and watches the people in it and participates in the city. And this was, you know, coming, coming into existence at a similar time in the industrial revolution and in the birth of the modern city where you were surrounded by people you didn't know in an ever growing city that was further and further divorced from nature. And so city life became a thing to observe and a thing to, yeah. uh, you know, find meaning in. Yeah. So while the Flaneur was definitely like a literary figure that was popularized by some of the like best poets and best critical theorists 
we kind of avoided that on that episode. We aren't interested in getting too deep into the weeds because I don't read poetry for fun. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But I did find actually a link between Walter Benjamin and department stores and the Flaneur. So Walter Benjamin is one of the most famous critical theorists. Uh, his work, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, is taught in most like critical theory seminars and to critical theory students in their first year. And his final work actually was called The Arcades Project, and it was published posthumously. And uh, I found a blog called The Flaneuse Project. The Flaneuse is the female version of the Flaneur. And the Flaneuse Project is kind of like anonymous. It's a bizarre like WordPress blog that <laughs> someone posts maybe like three times a year on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they made this post, though, about the arcades project which i actually looked at it and let me tell you it is one of the most confusing things to read because it's literally a thousand pages <laughs> it's just it, very terse and academic basically it like so it was his work was published posthumously and based off of what i was trying to look at it seems like someone had just collected a lot of his loose thoughts and grouped them together and you can look through them but it's hard to see like what are just quotes that he's pulling and what are his words it's I couldn't really figure it out. But I found on this blog that they say on page fifty seven of the Arcades project that Walter Benjamin said this, but I looked at page fifty seven on the PDF I found it is not there. But <laughs> there defi- there is this link. Um I do feel comfortable citing this even though I'm <laughs> I'm a little bit confused. But according to the Flanews project, on page fifty seven of the Arcades project, Walter Benjamin wrote that If the arcade is the classical form of the interior, which is how the flaneur sees the street, the department store is the form of the interior's decay. The bazaar is the last hangout of the flaneur. If in the beginning the street has become an interior for him, now this interior turned into a street, and he roamed through the labyrinth of merchandise, as he had once through the labyrinth of the city. And so the labyrinth of merchandise that he refers to is the department store. And uh, a bit further down um, in this blog post from the the News Project, the author wrote that the department store was, as Benjamin described, the Flaneur's final coup, the death of the Flaneur. Benjamin argued that the city of Paris and the rise of the department stores slowly contributed to the transformation of the Flaneur into a consumer and a window shopper. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. With the flaneur, like it's all about the pedestrian experience and the idea of a street. Um, and in our, you know, strong towns terminology, they talk about streets and roads. If a street is a destination, you know, a place where people live, shop, walk, exist, and a road is a place, is a way to take you from place to place. So the worst of them is a strode, of course, which is bad at both. It tries to take people like, as efficiently as possible from place to place, but it also tries to stick places of business on it. And then these two needs compete and nothing gets done, basically. But I think a good pedestrian street can't just be a destination. Like there's really great places like, I don't know, Southport Corridor in Chicago is like full of all these nice shops and restaurants. And definitely some people like will drive or take the train or walk over to there just to experience it. But there's other people just passing through there. For some people, that's just their shortest walk to get from point A to point B. Yeah. And I think that that is something that like malls will never have. No one's really going to pass through the mall 
in order to get somewhere else faster. But people um, will pass through the department store yeah. from city block to city block because mm-hmm. it's heated yeah. and it might be raining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially like yeah, with the Marshall Fields in Chicago, I've like literally passed through it in like really bad weather and just cut through the shop floor in order to get to the other side of it. And arcades preserve that too. Sometimes they would be just like basically a covered street. And the yeah. arcades of England or uh, the arcades of Europe are very, very good at this. They just they look like the street and then you just look upwards and there's glass there. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lot more of that. Like people need to be a little bit in transit. You know, it can't just be like one place that we've all agreed on. Let's go there and do commerce. Like, no, it has to be, there has to be a little bit of throughput of people. Yeah. But yeah, for me, when I read this blog post and I read these quotes, uh, it made me think about how on our first episode, Flaneur, we had talked about how people in like pre-agricultural societies, they oftentimes go out into the forest or into nature to look at animals as like their main pastime. And this made me think that there's sort of a link between that and the Flaneur, which is looking at people on the street and the department store, which is looking at merchandise to us, we're looking at TV to us, looking at computers to us, looking at our phones. So I think that you can draw like a line chart between all of these different things. And as you go from left to right, uh, the subject that the individual is looking at becomes increasingly smaller and the transition becomes increasingly domestic. So, I mean, think about like someone being out in nature, looking at nature and looking at animals, like you are part of this expansive, endless thing. And then to go from that to the other end point where you're just in your bed looking at your phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's That's like the ultimate conclusion of it. Yeah, the smallest possible screen, the smallest yeah. unit of, of person. You're not in a crowd anymore. You're just in your home space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, on the Flaneur episode, we did talk about how we went from looking at other people as a Flaneur to just, you know, watching as a pastime. Because the Flaneur will make people realize that people have been watching for pleasure and watching in their leisure time for forever. I mean, before, you know, TVs, there was a radio and before the radio, there was... I mean, you just keep going back. There's like always ways for people to procrastinate. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, our personal experiences with department stores before we get into the kind of, I don't know, demise of the department store, but we'll touch on it a little bit. I don't know. My family would always get glamour shots done at the department store. And so my experience with department stores is not in these grand, like, you know, 19, early 1900s flagship locations. Uh, It's really more in like the way that department stores survived, which was by kind of grafting themselves onto malls. And so department stores found a new purpose with malls as an anchor tenant where, um, you know, a mall could have this great diversity of stores and not every store is for every person or whatever, but the department store was for everyone. Like the clothes were not insane in any direction. They were just pretty middle market and they had homewares and stuff that everyone could need. And so, yeah, we'd go out there and we'd get like these cheesy family photos taken. My my sister, her first job was at a a JCPenney's, which was when malls started to struggle. JCPenney's was one of the first to really struggle. I think that with a lot of things, like there's always a, a hollowing out of the middle um, where the very high end survives and the very low end survives and the places that are, you know, like middle class. Yeah, the, don't there's do well. no end to the polarization in our society. <laughs> yeah. 
It's yeah. always got to be the extremes now. Yeah. It's like the dollar store is doing well. And I always see lines outside of the Gucci store. <laughs> so like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This JC Penney's my sister worked at, like this was a dying mall in Las Vegas, uh, in the late two thousands or no early 2010s. Um, and it was like this poor mall just got a worse and worse reputation. Someone got stabbed waiting in line for a new Air Jordans release. And so that's all people associate that mall with for a bit. But yeah. yeah. Well, right. imagine living in a city where like the worst thing that happened was one stabbing. <laughs> and just, I bet they didn't even die. Yeah. Yeah. No, they probably lived, lived enough to wear the Jordans. Um, but yeah. And then I had mentioned earlier, but my Jewish grandma loves department stores so much. Um, she loves finding deals. She loves sales. Department stores have a weirdly like large, part in the Jewish imagination. Um, Jews were very involved in department stores too. Um, I mean, we were like often peddlers and stuff in the old country selling small wares. And then we'd open up stores in the US. My family actually ran a grocery store. Um, Where do you know? Uh, in a small town in upstate New York that um, like basically in the Catskills where it would have a huge explosion of people in the summer. Um, but the grocery store mostly served year round kind yeah. of people. Um, but they would like, kind of serve as a wholesaler to the big um, hotels in the area as well. They'd coordinate that kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah. And then like famous Jewish guy involved with department stores is Julius Rosenwald who worked for Sears and he expanded their um, catalog department, uh, which is, I don't know, that was still big when I was a kid, the Sears catalog. Um, But yeah, they could send you everything. Like they could send you a house, interestingly. And yeah, basically the USPS uh, and the, in the early 1900s, actually started delivering to rural houses where they didn't before. It was the biggest expansion in the USPS. Before, they would just take it to the local post office, and then that farmer would have to take his horse into town to go get whatever was delivered to him. But yeah, that really let these stores kind of explode. Um, but yeah, it's like, and you can see the Sears catalog playing into kind of, you know, the Amazon store that we have today. There's always kind of going to be a desire for a single company across the entire country who you can order something for and eventually it gets to you and they have a large catalog and you know what you're going to get. I don't know. There's, there's a need for that. So as much as I hate Amazon, it's like, yeah, it's always going to kind of exist. I just weren't, they, I just wish they weren't like an evil hegemonic kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And, um, in three essays on accelerationism in one of the three essays, the author talks about how one of the contradictions of capitalism is that private entities they all sort of follow the same path to creating like a planned economy in a sense where like they are able to have like a national supply chain that distributes goods in a way that like a government would if they were trying to replace the economy. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the contradictions where it's like, yeah, everyone's getting the same consumer goods through like one company and a centralized distribution network that is like yeah. acting as the state, but. What's your experience with department stores? So I didn't really go to them much as a child because my mom had to do all the shopping for my dad because he was a photographer and would need like random little objects to go in the photo shoots that he was doing. And she would regularly like have to go shopping for like days to find particular things that he would need for like a shoot. And so she was like tired of shopping by the time I was born. Like we never went to malls. We never went to department stores, but I do know that we would go to the Macy's on state street and what was the like Marshall Fields building. 
And we would look at like the Christmas windows around Christmas time. We did that a few times, but, and then we would go inside, but that was largely the extent of it. I, I now in my like adult life, I try to go to Macy's like periodically and I don't find anything that I like. (laughs) It's too generic. It's like everything is really bland and also has a logo on it. And I'm not really trying to buy clothing that, you know, is branded. So I'll walk around like the men's floor, which is I think the fourth floor for like an hour. And I'll always walk out empty handed, which makes me sad because I want to support this place. But it just doesn't really work for me. Yeah, when I bring people there, it's really more to show them the architecture than to be like, you're not going to believe what great deals this Macy's has. <laughs> like, it's it's not offering anything different from what other yeah. um, places are. Yeah. Oh, and the last time I was there, actually, I saw this, like, really bizarre display on the f- first floor from this company called, like, It's Sugar, which it's like a candy company, which they have. I looked them up because they're so strange. They have, like, 120 locations. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I saw all of these ads that where it would be like a woman with a bowl of salad and a woman with candy. And then it would say like, um, candy is always the answer. And the woman with salad, the woman with salad would look sad. Or there'd be like another ad where it's like a guy eating candy and it will say like part of a unbalanced diet. And it feels really like capitalist and like post-internet. Like, yeah, it feels like idiocracy or like, which I always kind of hate that movie, but, um, Yeah, it's it's that crassness. It's that 2000s thing. We had one of those locations in Las Vegas and they just sell like yeah, candy underwear. They have some overlap with the kind of stuff you'd find at Spencer's Gifts. And I think it's like out of that, like when diet culture, not rose in America, it always comes and it goes. But um, there's always gonna be something that bucks against that. It's like the KFC double down, the sandwich that's two pieces of fried chicken. And then yeah. bacon in the middle. It's like we're always going to vacillate wildly between these two extremes. Polarization. Polarization. Always. Again. Yeah. But yeah, when I was there, I did see crazy candy like that. Like they had giant gummy bears. They had like gummy sharks that weighed like a pound. They had freeze dried Skittles, which had been popularized through TikTok. Mm. Candy bras. And um, I looked online at um, its candy's website and I saw urine themed sour liquid candy. Like when you do like a urine test, it's like you're going to drink out of that. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what's really sad is that, um, yeah, Marshall Fields was known for its amazing ca- candy counter in the basement down there. It was like a very classic old school kind of, as you talked about, like candy store and they'd have uh, Frango mints was the one thing they were known for. Frango mints. I don't know what exactly it is, um, but they're known for that. And just as of last weekend, they closed down the candy store forever in the basement and they have signs up saying like, Oh, for all your sweet tooth needs, go to it's sugar upstairs. And it's just such a, like, that's not trad. We used to be a proper country thing of like, we used to have like, yeah, people in starched white dress shirts, like spooning out classic, uh, wholesome candies for you. And now you go upstairs and it's like a Kim Kardashian sponsored (laughs) it's sugar place, which she is. I think she's involved with that somehow. I forget how, but yeah, yeah, it's just crass and I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah. You know where I've been wanting to go is um, Margie's Candies to get like a banana split because I've never been. Yeah. And it's really not the time of year, although it's unusually warm for January right now. Yeah. It's like 40, mm-hmm. but that sounds so good. Yeah, it's got a great neon sign. It's just, yeah, old timey candy places are great. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, oh, one weird little thing just about like department store culture I found interesting is that like they are a classic place for getting gifts. 
for people because they literally sell everything. And so it's not like, oh, I have to go to a special place to find this. It's just like, I'll show up there. Something will come to me. I can ask someone there. They'll often have a place like just for like gifts by sorted by price. I mean, everywhere does that. Yeah. Now. And I think they do do um, gift wrapping still. Yeah. So uh, that's a good uh, service. Which is a great service. I have like, there's like really devoted homemakers who have a whole like gift wrapping setup. And I can't imagine like having that. <laughs> that just seems so serious. But in the show, Nathan for you. Uh, which is a bizarre show made by Nathan Fielder that like spoofs the kind of um, kitchen nightmares, turn around a business sort of deal. Yeah. They had this weird character, this guy, Bill, uh, Bill Heath, who showed up in the role of a Bill Gates impersonator. And he was just very clearly a strange man who wouldn't leave the production team alone, even after his very small role came to a conclusion. And he later has a larger role in the series and they kind of go into his strange backstory. And he's from like a, pretty clearly well-to-do family in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he's just been in California for about 40 years trying to kind of make it as an actor and not really getting there. But in order to ingratiate himself with this um, production team, he would just pop by unannounced with gifts from department stores. And I was reading about this online and someone just commented on it that like it's a very classic kind of old moneyed thing to do is that by... Like, just getting a generic gift from a department store. I think one of the things he got them was, like, a silver platter. Yeah, a, a serving platter, which is also, like, of an era that is just, like, past as well. Yeah. <laughs> but you show up, you give someone a gift they didn't ask for, and you've now bought, like, you know, minimum 30 minutes of their time. Like, they owe you that, like, since you showed up, you know, and surprise them with a gift. You need to, like, give them your... Um, yeah, attention. you should follow library policy and only accept baked goods. <laughs> yes, during yeah. the entirely baked good bribe economy. <laughs> Uh, yeah not a bribe oh and one final thing on department stores this is just an anecdote but it's a really funny story so as i mentioned i have like nine siblings four of which are sisters and so i can tell this story without anyone realizing like which of the sisters did this so one of my sisters once told me that she was on the first floor of macy's in like the perfume section and she was like smelling one of the perfumes And she put the bottle up her nostril, like the tip of it. And then she was like twisting it left to right. And (laughs) as she was doing that, like an employee turned a corner and saw her and her like jaw dropped. And my sister dropped the bottle and like ran away. Um, (laughs) Kids are like little aliens, you know? No, she did that as an adult. Oh, (laughs) Oh my God. You didn't realize that? No, I thought that was as a kid. Because I told you that... um, you, the story yeah. to you at least once or twice yeah. already. You thought it, she was a yeah, child. Yeah, I thought you guys were children during that. No, that, that <laughs> makes her sound like she's like Will Ferrell, an elf, where she's like, oh, <laughs> doesn't know the rules of our society. But a grown adult doing that is, yeah. No, she has, she does like stuff in public sometimes where I'm like, do, don't do that. Like, oh, please stop. Man. I, yeah, I cannot imagine doing that. I have, yeah, <laughs> some friends that do that. And I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> like, but yeah. And then one part, yeah, with department stores, and that interests me, I think also you, is like how they, we talked about how they physically like fit into the urban fabric. Like you walk yeah. through them to get from place to place. But also department stores existed during this time that like you and I both harp on as being so good because this was the time of the traditional development pattern where yeah. cities were built, you know, not in mega projects, but by individual people taking small bets or large bets also yeah. as well in terms of doing stuff like opening a 10 floor <laughs> department store. But what's interesting about department stores, is they didn't choke out the rest of the market. 
I'm sure that, you know, maybe they would, you know, exert their kind of power on smaller stores and they'd compete with each other. But like family clothing stores, family candy stores, like just because there was a nice candy store in the basement of Marshall Fields didn't mean that, that there wasn't a candy store, you know, in a five mile radius of it. They were able to kind of they weren't apex predators. Yeah. Like killing the ecosystem or anything. They were just kind of existing in it. Yeah. That was partly because of the Robinson Patman Act which was like an antitrust law that was never repealed. It just stopped being enforced in the 1980s, which, you know, coincidentally happens mm. to be when Walmart started to really explode and pop up everywhere. But from when it was passed in 1936 to 1980, the law prohibited anti-competitive practices by producers, specifically price discrimination in the sense where if you were a larger company, you could not barter lower prices. So a department store could not barter lower prices compared to the smaller store, uh, you know, a few blocks away. And this was across the entire economy. And it actually like, you know, you might if you're not really aware of like antitrust, you might think, okay, these bigger companies, they're selling they're selling products in the present day because they're the most efficient. They're the best. Mm, Yeah. No, actually, Amazon oftentimes is selling you the cheapest product because they're throwing their weight around and they're able to buy for cheaper than everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I don't know. Uh, It just seems like a classic thing to fix. You know, it's I think we can all kind of agree the point of like capitalism stuff is to like, (laughs) yeah, deliver cheaper goods to the consumer on some level. Like you can agree with whether or not that's a good thing, but that seems like it's kind of the goal of it. And so. Yeah, letting companies just throw their weight around like that doesn't it only benefits the company. It's pretty clear why they don't enforce it anymore. It's just, you know, pressure yeah. from said companies. There's apparently a lot of like really, really good old laws on the book that never got repealed. They stop, they just stopped being enforced. Yeah. And so like if we ever did get like a good leftist in office or president, you could just pick that stuff back up yeah. um, technically without like, you know, having to pass any new laws. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so even in the in the peak of department stores, also one thing about them is that we think of them as being chains, you know, like, oh, going to the Macy's, you'd assume that every town is going to have a Macy's. Um, but Marshall Fields in Chicago, that was their only location. There wasn't Marshall Fields in New York City or yeah. something. Um, they just kind of like really ran their area and then kind of outside of their sphere of influence, another smaller department store would usually open up and press its sphere of influence. Yeah. Um, and small towns would just have a department store. It wouldn't be large by any means. Um, when I was in upstate New York, I was having dinner with my grandma and um, a friend of hers who's same age, you know, early 80s. And she was waxing poetic about the department store in her small town. And the, the luxurious thing about it, she said, was wall to wall carpeting everywhere, which, yeah, like in the not a luxurious thing anymore. In our mind, like, I don't know, yeah. commercial carpeting is kind of sad to us. I, I mean, carpeting is expensive from what I've heard, right? Uh, I don't know. There's always a give and a take with that. I think maybe at that time it must have been. And yeah, it's a lot of upkeep. But like, I don't know, we can churn out commercial grade carpeting just like that. <laughs> like You could really yeah. just lay it down for cheap, too. Um, especially if you're like, if your flooring isn't even or something, you can really even it out in the uh, carpeting process. Yeah. But yeah. Specialty stores always survived even throughout department stores. Like again, just because Marshall Fields had a fur department doesn't mean there wouldn't be like a luxurious fur store, you know, that you would seek out if you really want to do something and, you know, jewelry stores and things like that. Men's outfitters, like department stores were really kind of seen as like 
I mean, there was a space for everyone, but it was primarily for women. It was like, yeah. And at the beginning, like women of means, definitely. It was just kind of where they would while away their days. But I, uh, I often buy like old dress shirts off eBay and on the tag, it'll say the manufacturer, but then it will say like what store it was manufactured for. So like I have this shirt that's manufactured by Gitman brothers that make really good shirts. And it says made by Gitman bros specifically for Levy's in Nashville. And I looked it up and it is a like menswear um, store that has been in business for 169 years. Wow. And so like, I don't know, it's, they're still open and it's probably because they have knowledgeable staff and they have a wider selection than a department store yeah. is going to be like worth for them to invest in. We, we should link them in the bio for the episode because you probably have not looked this deep into this, but for our podcast, we can see like where people are listening from. We have a statistically significant number of people listening from Tennessee for some reason. Oh, um, I don't know why, but shout out to the yeah. Tennessee listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I hope to make a pilgrimage to a Levy's in Nashville someday. Also back to the Jewish thing, clearly Levy Jewish. We, yeah. we were tailors in the old country as well. And we parlayed that into like running menswear stores yeah, I have another shirt that's from, uh, it says, like, made by Gitman Bros for Redwood and Ross. And that was, like, a menswear and department store chain in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So, yeah, that's the kind of market that, like, you know, a large company would not expand into. And you would have, like, nationwide companies like um, Brooks Brothers would open in any, you know, large city where a lot of people need business suits. Yeah. Um, but they wouldn't open in Kalamazoo. And so, you know, the smaller fish would rise to the top, basically. Yeah. All right, now we get into the sad part. We get into the death of the department. Well, I shouldn't say the death, but the decline of the department store. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's still time. So all of the people listening, if you think the idea of, the, of going to the department store is fun, you should go try it out and go check out your local department store. But yeah, there are some factors that are contributing to them becoming less popular. Um, so the first and most obvious one is like online retail. And so with online retail there are both like push and pull factors that are contributing the switch from department stores to online retail so like some of the push factors are just society's aversion to customer service and talking to people in person mm -hmm. um, and then also like working from home and then pull factors are cheaper prices and just having a wider variety of items to look through and select from and on that actually one of the podcasts I listened to thought topics recently, uh, they were talking about going to the mall and one of the hosts said that like they will go to the mall and maybe buy like a few things, but like they can't go there for statement pieces because malls are not as solvent and they need to make more conservative decisions mm -hmm. about like what clothing they offer. Yeah. They can't like afford to just chase trends. Like, yeah. <laughs> like with the internet, you have essentially like infinite display space. You know, you can show everything, even if it, it, even if that garment would like only apply to a few people being interested in it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't take any skin off your back. But with physical retail, you have to like be choosy about what you have. You just end, end up with very like yeah, middle of the road kind of stuff. Um, hard for me to personally relate to needing statement pieces. That is one yeah. thing. I try not to make too many statements since I dress pretty formally anyway. That's kind of a statement in itself. And so I don't like. I'm not going to wear a blazer and then also have that blazer with a crazy pattern. Like the, the blazer is enough yeah. for me. I have some color blocked seer sucker stuff. That's about as out there as I get. Yeah. Um, for me, my statement pieces are usually my jackets. I feel like as a person, I'm actually usually not that well dressed until I put my jacket on. <laughs> it's what, it's what seals the deal. 
I know. But when I take it off, I'm always like, "Ah, I feel like naked and lame. But yeah, actually, when I worked at American Apparel, I noticed towards the end when they were declining, they started with all of their new clothing that they came out with. It always only offered in like black, white, navy, red, and maybe one other like fun color. But yeah, they started to come out with like less fun colors, which used to be the whole point of American Apparel. Like you go there and dyed colors. Yeah. Yeah, like when I went there for the first time, actually, I for my first time ever going to American Apparel, I walked out the store with like three pairs of pants in um, an aqua mint, neon lavender, and peacock. So, yeah. yeah. I own a pair of teal gym shorts from Los Angeles Apparel, the um, yeah survivor of American Apparel. Wait, um, teal? Or what color? Teal, yeah. Your eyes narrowed when you said it, but yes. <laughs> but no, like how bright it teal? Not that bright. I okay. It's, it's a little like. Yeah, you're probably color. exaggerating. I don't yeah. think you're walking around in like 1980s teal, oh, teal gym yeah. shorts, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I leave all my like collared shirt stuffiness at the door when I go to the gym. I'm out there in a tank top. I ran into yeah. our friend, our, our friend Francis at the gym, and he said I was dressed gay at the gym, which is probably fair. I wear like five inch inseam shorts. Yeah and tank tops but that's the kind of circulation i need you need, you need to air on you you know <laughs> i i've always worn like pretty short inseams from working in american pearl they didn't have like longer inseams even when that was the style yeah. um but yeah there was a time in my life actually when i was a kid where like whenever i'd see men wearing like shorts above the knee i would get like uncomfortable and like my like inner like um discomfort or like fear i guess of my own sexuality would like pop up um that with tank tops too but yeah both of those things i'd see like short shorts or tank tops on men back when like guys would only wear like shorts below the knee yeah and when i would see that i'd get like i'd get um embarrassed (laughs) yeah oh my god that's funny yeah (laughs) but now i wear them all the time they're better yeah they are shorts below the knee look like trash it's like yeah I will say, I don't know, being taller, maybe, I think most guys should wear five inch inseam shorts. It's probably debatable if I should or not, but I don't care. This is, this is my, I'm sticking to it. But yeah, other challenges to uh, department stores right now is just, I mean, discounters, like yeah. <laughs> cheap anything. TikTok shop is, it's back. Didn't it like start at one time and then they like wound it down, but it's back. No, now. it's, it's, it's been debuted for the first time. It was oh. never a thing up until like okay. a few months ago. Yeah. Oh, they had it in Europe. That was one thing. They hadn't had it in America. Yet. That in Asia. Yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. So that's going to be a race to the bottom of course there. And just like how much cheaper and cheaper can Chinese factories churn out? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like kind of flash in the pan. Yeah. Trends. As much as I find like the idea of TikTok shop funny, the the merchandise on there just like isn't nice enough like i'm not gonna buy it like as much as i kind of like think it's funny i I can't do it Mm -hmm. one time i i just wanted like a black hat and this was not tiktok shop but i just went on like ebay i'm like how cheap can i get a black baseball cap for and it was ridiculously cheap and i got it and it arrived and it was just like misshapen I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, there is, like, if you push the bar lower and lower, like, they're going to mess up even very basic things. Like, like the panels weren't the same size, so it was, like, bulbous yeah. on top. I was about to say it was, like, a child size hat or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did see that where my friend wanted a desk lamp, and she ordered it off of Amazon, and she, like, sorted by price. And then she got the desk lamp, and it was about, like, six inches tall. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. Um, um, 
But yeah, the third thing that's killing department stores are hypermarkets. So this was a term that I was introduced this week through researching department stores. And it refers to when a big box store also has a supermarket. So all of the Walmart locations that have like a supermarket, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine buying clothes from there. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a snob on that. I don't know. A from place, Walmart? Yeah. You know, it's like, unless I'm just getting like a Hanes cotton t-shirt, you know, something like that. A Hanes beefy tee. I actually yeah. have the cut of those. Those are good. I can't um, even buy clothing at Target. Like it doesn't really fit me right. So, but yeah, I always go to clothing stores for clothing. I feel like <laughs> you're always, it's always going to be a flop if you try to buy like clothing at a place that's not a clothing store. Yeah. It's just like department stores are really like pushing the edge of like what one business could conceivably have a, a like rough amount of expertise in, you know, they're like, all right, we sell clothes. We also have kitchenware. Uh, we also have bedding, but they're not going to try and sell you groceries. They'll have like candy. You know, like a pretty shelf stable good. Yeah. That is like you kind Every of buy place based candy, on looks though. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like it's they don't have to develop a candy wing or you something. You can buy candy at the hardware store. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. At Home Depot. And then, yeah, like department stores that kind of buck this trend. Um, uh, one of my jobs is close to like 900 North Michigan, which is this kind of giant complex, honestly, where there's a mall. In there, it's a city mall, meaning it's like six stories tall and not that wide in terms of footprint. Its anchor tenant is a Bloomingdale's department store that is always seems pretty bustling and busy. And this kind of plays into what we were talking about earlier, where the higher end survives. And so that Bloomingdale is on the upper end of the market. I think another high end one would be what's it, Nordstrom's is also on the higher end as well. Yeah. Um, what are those dogs outside? Like a parade of chihuahuas yeah, or something. Yeah, what the, it's just a chihuahua convention, <laughs> a chihuahua <laughs> confrontation outside. Um, but where was I? Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, outside of the Bloomingdale's in this mall, you also have like a Sur La Table, which is like a fancy kitchenware store where you can take cooking classes there as well. There's a Gucci store. There is a like very fancy thrift slash consignment store in there as well. It's just all these like higher end things that can kind of like that can pay their footprint based on large prices and not that much. Yeah. Yeah. So that seems to be surviving, doing well. They remodeled their food court into a food hall, which is fancy. And they have like a few like. Yeah. uh, Upscale Chicago chains like Small Cheval, which is a very judgy burger place. I don't Um, like them. I feel like the more you pay for a burger, the worse it is. I, I think there's. It's a it's a bell curve kind of deal, you know. Yeah. In terms, there is like a good value in paying a little bit more for a burger. Um, but yeah, I took my grandpa there and he was blown away. I gotta say, I think he eats some pretty bad burgers in upstate New York. Um, but yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was really floored by it. I think I've been um, talking to my grandparents a lot on the show, but like we're always talking about stuff from an earlier era. <laughs> I feel, yeah. and so like they are the people that I mine a lot of my like knowledge from. No, I mean, the name of our podcast is Silent Generation. Your grandpa is Silent Generation. Uh Um, No, I think I got the idea for the name of the podcast from a conversation I had with you, or just got the word buzzing in my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said something like, you know, reject your parents, embrace your grandparents. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think of myself as being like a trad person. Mm -hmm. I don't think you probably do either. I don't think I do, but then I think someone would apply that to me based on like my thoughts, beliefs, looks, and opinions. (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel like I have my foot in the old world and there's a way of life that's worth preserving. Mm-hmm. 
So I think the example I was giving you when I was talking about parents versus grandparents is like kind of food culture stuff of uh, like, yeah, it feels like my parents like kind of boomers into Gen X, like their thing would be like, you know, sugary cereals and stuff <laughs> like that. And like very processed things. And then I just kind of looked at my grandparents generation when I was out there with them, like the amount of chicken liver I ate in just like one week out in upstate New York, like I think I'm going to get gout. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. so I am so chock full of folic acid or whatever it is that you get from organ meats. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the old people had it right. Yeah. So before we conclude, I think we should just talk a little bit about like how do department stores save themselves? Um, so I found a TikTok from this account called like love what you sell, where she made a list of various ideas that she has for like how department stores can save themselves. And some of her ideas include like a lounge for people working from home, elevated services like gift wrapping, which I already do, but I feel like they can do it in an even more impressive way yeah. or like custom clothing, like simple tailoring. But yeah, what ideas do you have about like how department yeah. stores can save themselves? I mean, yeah, there's tons of like empty commercial space all over Chicago. And then the bigger spaces will get turned into these like experiences. There's like the Nutella experience and there's the Van Gogh immersive yeah. experience. And yeah, department stores have the like benefit of often being on land that they directly own. They don't need to pay rent on or anything, which is why they're kind of so lazy with yeah. how they use it, <laughs> basically. And we were complaining about the It's Sugar thing, but pop-ups like that is a great way for them to survive. They can kind of like latch on to these um, flash in the pan kind of trends um, yeah. and use it to kind of buoy themselves. They're not like spending too much money on it. They're spending space on it. And that's kind of how they survived in the rise of designer things in the 80s and 90s was that like in a department store, there'd be like a Ralph Lauren section and things like that. So it, yeah. it kind of like department stores are crafty. I mean, they survived in the 60s by like just, as I said, grafting themselves onto malls and then malls are dying. So it's time to like refocus back on city areas. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, based off of everything we know from strong towns, the department stores, well, it's a quote-unquote dying model. It's going to outperform and survive, whereas malls won't. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I feel like, yeah. In the same way that, like, Amtrak is sort of randomly having a resurgence, like, I feel like malls might have that moment out of the blue. Yeah. Or not well, malls. I feel like department stores might have that moment out yeah. of the blue. Mm -hmm. I, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we, like, accidentally reinvent department stores. If, like, I don't know, of course. Lifestyle centers. Lifestyle centers. Do you know about those? What does that mean? It's when basically you have a mall, an outdoor mall, where then there's housing built on top of it. This is like a new way that like malls are like sort of saving themselves. It's a good way to out add housing to mm -hmm. a community anyways. I think they're a good idea. But yeah, I don't know. No, I don't think the comparison between a lifestyle center and a department store works. But it is in between like a 1950s mall and a department store. It's like closer. It's more in between. Yeah. Yeah. That 900 North Michigan I was talking about, there's two different condo towers there and a four seasons hotel. And so like you instantly pick up the business from those people. And the fact that it's expensive condos and expensive stores is very well matched. And they also stuck an Equinox in the basement as well. So now you're getting the eyes of rich people who might not even live in the area. They might yeah. drive over there, go to the cheap parking garage, which I park in all the time. And yeah, spend business there. Um, I don't know. I, the city mall 
might be the survivor in all of this i yeah. think yeah the hybrid ones um but then you also have stuff like water tower place in chicago was this thriving mall in the 80s and 90s and it had its own macy's location just walking distance from the marshall fields which was kind of wild for a bit it kind of when you do think about it it makes sense that like one of them had to close yeah and thank god it's the one from the 80s and not the one from the 1880s <laughs> um yeah or 1890s but yeah i um i actually damn it i should have stopped by uh Marshall Fields today, but I went to Uniqlo instead. And that I guess is a, <laughs> yeah. a statement on you know, on the status of this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it takes a while just to get through like one end of the store to the other. Like there's this um TikTok that kind of went viral where this woman was talking about how she was in the Macy's on State Street and she thought that she was on like the third or fourth floor or something, but actually she was in the basement. And she couldn't find a way out because she kept looking for like the down escalators and couldn't find them. And eventually she found a worker who was like, actually, ma'am, you're in the basement. And she was like, I never went down the stairs. Um, and it, it, it demonstrates how the yeah. Macy's there is kind of like a liminal space that yeah. kind of is kind of eerie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In the basement, they used to have a sports bar called Infields. Yeah. Um, and it was like. It was really funny because, like, it had no windows. It was in a basement, but it had, like, window frames. And inside it, it would just have, like, photos of nice vistas in Chicago, basically. Like, oh, a view of Wrigley Field, a view of Soldier Field. Um, But it just felt so, like, fake. It was trying to be this, like, neighborhood sports bar. Yeah. Uh, But they had very cheap Sapporo drafts, which I really appreciated. And the space now has just been blocked up. They haven't, like, absorbed it into the store any it's in fact like it had a fake brick opening on it and then they just added more fake brick to it so the space is still totally there behind there and i yeah. want to like bust into there and see it you could reopen it yeah i think so i'm gonna open my weird little basement dive yeah um, so yeah in conclusion uh the death of the department store is highly exaggerated it's still got some fight in it it's just got to kind of go back to basics yeah um it's got to chase the trends lightly uh but yeah, it's got to stay true to what it is. It's yeah. like a, I don't know, a third place, albeit a very commercial one, um, where everyone can meet. Yeah. Or in this age of polarization, it has to go full force, and you need to walk from end to end of the store, and you'll just see you'll just see display after display of like random spaces that influencers have bought out, and <laughs> it's all just yeah. like one big living internet in a way yeah yeah just become the physical internet they have all this space just sell sell like three foot by three foot chunks of space to people yeah you know that sounds cool (laughs) yeah tape it out on the floor yeah sell it at a premium but yeah no i'm gonna still i'm gonna keep trying to make department stores work for me i'll probably end up buying things for other people more than i buy them for myself there Mm. um but yeah i think we're gonna live to see them survive and we're going to see more malls go out of business but yeah this was a fun episode this week and thanks for listening thanks for listening bye